0: But it's going to take 30,000 years to get to the nearest star. And right now, we just don't have any, uh, any rocket in sight, any concept that can get us to velocity to get us to the nearest star in, a let's say, a human lifetime. Challenging, a challenging thing for our students to start thinking about that.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm Dr. Al Scott, your host. In this episode, I'm continuing in a bit of a space science theme to interview Professor Don Gurnett, the primary investigator on the plasma wave instruments on board both Voyager spacecraft. These amazing nuclear-powered spacecraft were launched in 1977 and are now the most distant man-made objects known, having recently left the solar system on their way to interstellar space. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends on social media. Professor Gurnett started his science career by working on spacecraft electronics design as a student employee in the University of Iowa Physics Department in 1959. After completing his Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering at Iowa in 62, he transferred to physics, where he received his Masters of Science and PhD degrees in nineteen sixty three and nineteen sixty five. Wow, that's fast. He was appointed assistant professor at the University of Iowa in nineteen sixty five with subsequent promotions to associate and full professor following in sixty eight and seventy two. Professor Gurnett is considered by many to be the founder of the field of space plasma wave physics and has participated in over 30 spacecraft projects, most notably the Voyager 1 and 2 flights to the outer planets, the Galileo mission to Jupiter, and the Cassini mission to Saturn. Professor Gurnett has received numerous awards for his research spanning two millennia. These include the 1978 John Howard Dellinger Gold Medal for the International Scientific Radio Union, all the way to the 2005 Hans-Alfven Medal from the European Geosciences Union. And in 2004, he was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor Gurnett, welcome to The Rational View.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks a lot for the introduction.
1: Oh, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Could you... Tell our listeners, give, a, give them a feel of your early career, how you became involved in space science uh, back in, in, in the time when you were doing that.
0: Okay, I'll do that. I hope it's not too long a story, but it dates way back. Uh, you've probably heard of uh, the year 1957. I have. What is the famous thing that occurred during 1957?
1: That would be the, the Russian Sputnik satellite.
0: That's correct. The other important thing in my life is I arrived at the University of Iowa to study electrical engineering uh, on that uh, September of that year. And just a few days later, on October 4th, the uh, Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1. And I had uh, read considerably about space research which, of course, didn't sort of exist then, but about the possibility of launching a satellite in orbit around the Earth. And I was just absolutely in awe of the uh, uh, achievement that they had achieved with the uh, Sputnik 1. Then, uh, unknown to me, but James Van Allen, I hope maybe you heard of him, the so-called Van Allen radiation belts. Yep. He was working on an instrument to be launched on Explorer One, which turned out to be the first successful US spacecraft. Okay. It was launched on February first, nineteen fifty-eight. And that's just a few months after Sputnik. And uh, you know, Sputnik one had a tremendous effect on the nation because we were suddenly behind uh the Soviets. And not only that, we had a Uh, Russian object flying over our head every about an hour and a half. And that was the beginning of what was called the space race. And Explorer 1, thankfully, it was a cooperation between actually three institutions. uh, The Rock Island, not Rock Island, the uh, uh, Redstone Arsenal down in Huntsville, Alabama. And that was... uh, Werner Von Braun, Hmm. and he developed the rocket, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, uh, California, developed the spacecraft, and Van Allen developed the one and only instrument on the spacecraft, a Geiger
1: tube. Okay, a Geiger tube.
0: And it uh, made a great discovery, the first really great discovery of the space age. Totally unexpectedly, it was discovered that the Earth is surrounded by a very intense radiation belts, uh, something nobody, in fact, it's saturated. He was expecting to study cosmic rays, which, you know, just for your listener there, cosmic ray, if if you set a Geiger tube, Geiger counter out on your desk, it'll go click, 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 as these high energy, very high energy particles go through the geiger tube.
1: Cosmic rays come in from space, from Coming all angles. From,
0: yes, they didn't really know where. I mean, they came from outer space. That's all you could really say. Mm-hmm. And it was expected that there would be a latitude dependence in the cosmic ray intensity because of the magnetic field of the Earth. That's what Van. That's what Van Allen was ex- expecting to understand to study. Instead, they he discovered he and his colleagues. Uh, Discovered that uh, sometimes the Geiger tube was completely saturated, like it was broken. Hmm. But they soon figured out that it was this intense radiation, and that that was the beginning of space space plasma, sometimes called space plasma physics. I can go into what plasmas are maybe a little bit later. Okay, in the United States, and the University of Iowa was suddenly uh, the center. of of space research in the United States. And I just couldn't help but think that I wanted to join Van Allen's group. And so in April of, uh, that would have been 58, I went over to his office and asked, well, I didn't get to see him, but I talked to his secretary and uh, she said to leave a note. And I said, I would like to work in his group. And uh, as my background, I said uh, uh, I had a background in uh, electrical engineering, especially communications. That was because I built model airplanes, radio control model airplanes in high school. Wow. (laughs) Using tubes. (laughs) Believe it or not, if you remember, tubes is radio. Yes.
1: So you launched these in in airplanes?
0: (laughs) Yes. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, Model Airplane Club connected with the Collins Radio. Maybe you've heard of Collins Radio. That's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And as a young kid, I joined that club. And I really, that's what got me interested in electronics, frankly. Wow. And so I started working for Van Elm. Uh, In fact, we had a whole series of spacecraft. I call them the uh, Iowa Series of Spacecraft. In fact, We built, I built, I I designed the data system, the first data system ever flown in a spacecraft. Wow. Everything was analog before that. That includes Explorer 1, Explorer 3, Explorer 7, and so forth. So, and we we didn't have any computer at all on campus. And uh, another colleague, another another professor just been hired, Brian O'Brien, suggested that we go to a uh, what we now call digital, zero and one uh, system. Uh, that word wasn't used then. <laughs> and I worked on design for a digital data system that was flown on Iowa One, the very first spacecraft ever built entirely at the university. Uh, and you may remember that uh, Explorer One was actually built the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, even though Van Allen provided the hardware. So I got heavily involved in all of the early spacecraft. The fact that uh, we had five spacecraft, Iowa 1 up through Iowa 5. In the process of working as an electrical engineer, uh, we had a visitor come to Iowa. Uh, his name was Roger Gallet. He came from the National Bureau of Standards, and he played some recordings of some very strange space sounds. That were recorded on the ground, and they were at very low frequencies. Uh, in fact, they're in the audio range.
1: Hang on, sound doesn't travel in space. How do you have space sounds?
0: Well, they were on the ground. Yeah, they were detected with an antenna. Uh, there's two kinds of antennas: an electric antenna, like you some used to have on your car. Okay. Or you can have a loop antenna. <laughs> Typically, a loop antenna was used. Okay. And um, well, I, I remember very well this guy, uh, Roger Gallet, because he played some of these sounds, and one of them was called a whistler. I don't know if you ever heard a whistler or not. I have. They, they're a whistling sound. They go like, I'll try to mimic it. Okay. Uh, didn't do a very good job of that. Okay. But it was known that they were produced by lightning.
1: Oh, okay. So these are electromagnetic signals. That are in the frequency range of human hearing, effectively.
0: Yeah, here, that's correct in the audio frequency range. These are much different than the uh, lower, much lower frequency than the signals you detect on your car. Mm-hmm. So I went down in the basement of the physics building and I designed a uh, receiver, which really was no big deal. Uh, it's to an audio amplifier. And uh, I couldn't test it around the city because there's so much noise from uh, power lines, you know, 60-hertz power
1: lines and their harmonics. Just a big, loud buzz at 60 hertz.
0: Big, loud buzz, right. And that's very annoying. And so I took it out on my father's farm, which was about 30 miles from Iowa City. And I I remember going out there, and I was very disappointed because I didn't hear any whistlers. But on the third night, I heard very clearly several whistlers. So I went to Van Allen, and at that point, amazingly, uh, I was still an undergraduate. But uh, at that point, I was actually the project engineer on Iowa 3, the third spacecraft. I was in charge of it, the electrical side, I I wasn't a scientist then. But I asked Fed Allen if I could put this receiver on the spacecraft and find, find a way to transmit the signals to the ground. And he said, okay.
1: <laughs> nice. And,
0: you know, nowadays, if you want to get an instrument on a NASA spacecraft, you you may write a pile of proposals that's six inches high, and you might wait two years for them to either decide to fly it or not. That's amazing. Anyway, that was the general approval. He said, okay,
1: Go try it. So an undergrad electrical engineering student able to, to put us a, a scientific instrument on one of the first satellites.
0: That's right. And uh, actually, you can go to my website if you want. I have a memoir on that website called The Origin of uh, Space Radio and Plasma Wave Research. Nowadays, we call this study plasma waves. Not, not, it used to, was at that time called very low frequency. Anyway, the spacecraft was launched successfully. It was funded by the Navy. Uh, actually, it was a military launch of which our spacecraft was uh, bolted along with some other uh, military spacecraft. In fact, they had a weighted mock-up of our spacecraft in case we didn't get to the launch site, which was done on Cape Kennedy. I thought I'd just tell you what kind of pressure we had to deliver it. So we, built, <laughs> we built the spacecraft in, in About a year for, I think, Van Allen got from the Navy $100,000 for building a spacecraft, which by current standards is pretty, pretty economical. Anyway, I can remember to this day when Iowa 3 was launched and uh, it came over Iowa City and we sent a command to turn the transmitter on. And we were, turns out, we were flying over a thunderstorm, and we heard all kinds of whistlers. Oh, wow. And other weird sounds. And I can play those sounds for you. Actually, this came from Iowa 3, the Iowa 3 spacecraft. Okay. It's one of the original recordings.
1: That sounds great. Can you do that?
0: So we'll try that here. And uh, I think, now you hear these whistling tones, and each one is caused by a lightning flash. So we'll play it.
1: What, what's causing that sound? The, the lightning strikes, and now, but these whistles are much are they the same duration as the lightning strike? This is just an elect, the electromagnetic signal of the lightning? Uh,
0: the explanation is actually quite simple, but it, it involves plasma physics because when the lightning stroke goes off, you you get this uh, electromagnetic wave that's emitted. In fact, if you have your AM radio on in the car during a thunderstorm, you can hear these, these I call them crashes due to, due to the lightning. Now, at the, at these very low audio frequencies in a plasma up there in the ionosphere, you know, the ionized gas that we call the ionosphere, it turns out that the higher frequencies travel faster than the lower frequencies. So if you're some distance away, you hear the high frequency first followed somewhat later, a few, a fraction of a second to sometimes seconds, you'll hear the lower frequency. That's why you're hearing those whistling sounds.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And sometimes interesting, it turns out we can show and you can come, you can buy my book from Cambridge University Press on introduction to plasma physics and then, the uh, uh, let's see, the third chapter, there's a discussion of Whistler's. Uh, it turns out that these electromagnetic waves, when they get into the ionosphere and that ionized medium up there, they follow the magnetic field of the Earth. Quite not exactly, but very closely. And they'll go all the way to the other hemisphere and they may bounce off the ionosphere in the other hemisphere and come back and that round trip takes several seconds. And in fact, those whistlers I have playing for you have have probably gone all the way to the other hemisphere and back. They, they have a rather long, we call it dispersion. Wow. So I got myself involved as an undergraduate in studying these, uh, these whistlers. In fact, I discovered a very new type of whistler, which turned into my PhD eventually. But I want to talk about another thing, which is an even an even greater discovery. Not only did we hear whistlers, but we heard all kinds of other whistling sounds. And well, some of these had been heard in the ground and some had not. And one particular type is called dawn chorus.
1: I've heard of that.
0: You've heard of dawn chorus. Well, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you have a, a British background because in England, dawn chorus is the sound that birds make when they wake up in the morning and start singing, mm-hmm. and we heard all kinds of dawn chorus. And I'm going to play now for you, uh, dawn chorus. And so you can find this on my website also. But uh, you can now dawn chorus is different than whistlers. Not produced by lightning. We did we didn't have any idea where dawn chorus came from. And it's usually rising toes not always but uh, so I'll play it and you can
1: okay. i I have to tell you I've actually heard this myself i yeah. uh, I built a a project off the internet uh an elf detector they called it an extremely low frequency em detector uh with transducer and and plugged in some headphones to it and went out to an open field and and i've heard whistlers and i've heard dawn chorus myself so it's uh it's an it's anyone can do it it's it's really cool
0: that's amazing that's that's great uh once in a great while i'll run across a student who's done that same kind of thing but uh that shows you and I work on the same subject.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing that, to hear the dawn chorus. It's like birds whistling. Yeah. Uh, but it's EM it, and from space. So what what causes that?
0: Well, I, I solved that problem. In fact, uh, I wrote a paper on it back in, uh, I think it was about 1960. It turns out the dawn chorus reaches its maximum intensity in the outer van Allen radiation belt and and the outer radiation belt is very energetic electrons made up of energetic electrons and that was the first proof that it's produced by the radiation belt and i remember van Allen was very impressed by that wow you know his radiation belt and then i showed that his radiation belt was producing i'm going to call it music in fact, there have been some musical productions based on uh, these sounds, <laughs> uh, which I'm not a musician, but they, they just enjoy listening to things like that.
1: Now, is, is this from the interaction of the radiation belts with the, the bow shock from the sun as the earth, roti- as you come underneath that portion of the field?
0: Well, uh, the, the shock waves from the sun, I'll talk about that later, but not in this case. What happens is the electrons, these very energetic electrons, uh, they radiate electromagnetic waves, right? Mm-hmm. And some of those waves go backward along the magnetic field line, and they organize the phase of other electrons coming along the magnetic field. That's the Van Allen radiation belt. And they get up, they get the electrons grouped together. And that's what makes these strange rising tones. Uh, In fact, there are people still studying and there are conferences on how chorus is produced. Wow! But you can read a later chapter in my book. I think it's chapter eight, but I'm not sure my memory is right on that, where I discuss the theory of how this is produced. Uh, But uh, it's been a subject, and I might tell you, it has a very interesting connection to mankind's uh, attempt to uh, control fusion. You've probably heard of that. Yeah,
1: I'm very aware of that. You use the tokamak uh, design uh, magnets to confine a plasma and heat it up and create fusion.
0: It turns out the radiation belts are a perfect example of a, a magnetic trap. The electrons get trapped on the magnetic field line. That's what happens in a tokamak. And in a tokamak, which says you tried to make controlled fusion, uh, there are waves generated by these similar processes, not the same as doing chorus exactly. Actually, it turns out it's the ions that are most important. Hmm. And that has so far defeated controlled fusion. So it's, these waves are actually quite important. Uh, plasma physics is a very important subject that has to do with a, a very important long-term goal of humans, and that is to uh, somehow control fusion and have an uh, unlimited uh, energy source. That's not been achieved yet, but the same kind of process happens in the Van Allen radiation belt, and that's called Dawn Chorus. Amazing. Now, I don't know how much more you want me to go on about that, but uh, I I ended up studying, uh, well, you know, I'm I'm 81 now, and I started at at age 17, so I've spent most of my life
1: studying this subject. I'm sure you could go on for hours. (laughs) We've
0: flown spacecraft, uh, flown my kind of instruments uh, with, with somewhat more advanced instruments, actually, on, I think, over 30 spacecraft, Uh, I was very successful in flying these, and so I'm going to make a giant leap now to Voyager.
1: That, that's exactly what i'd love to hear about the the voyager spacecraft so they were launched in 1977 and they acquired the first close-up images of all the gas giant planets in our solar system and this is you know before hubble we before we had these hubble views we didn't know what these planets looked like close up and i remember seeing those first amazing photos from the voyager spacecraft close encounters and waiting uh, as, as Voyager 2 went past uh, Neptune and Uranus uh, to see the, the images of close up and they were so amazing um, yeah, to see those. It was
0: staggering.
1: And they're, they're now they're in all the textbooks uh, for introductory astronomy, all these Voyager photos. Uh, it was an amazing mission. So you uh, were involved in the Voyager mission as the PI on the uh, plasma wave instrument?
0: That's correct. I We proposed... Well, it was kind of complicated how we got on Voyager. We proposed an instrument that did not get selected. But I've learned an important principle in life. Keep trying. Yes. And uh, so we, uh, we politicked with NASA and got other scientists to recognize the importance of these plasma waves, things like Dawn Chorus, and Eventually we got selected and our data on Voyager was digitized in our instrument. And then it was recorded on a, on a tape recorder, the same tape recorder that was used to record the pictures on, I remember this was one of the great ideas we had. Uh, I wanted to get these analog signals back and they, they told me uh, JPL, no, they couldn't do that. They couldn't, they couldn't let me have the wire that goes to the transmitter, <laughs> and I said, "Well, how about if we digitize it and make it look just like the just like the imaging system?" And that's what we did. And so they were, they eventually installed a switch that could either take data from the imager, store it on a tape recorder, or take data from our instrument and store it on the tape recorder. And that was a tremendous success we uh, recorded Dawn Chorus from the uh, Van Allen Belt at Jupiter. In fact, I can play a recording of it and you can find it on my Sounds of Space. I'll, I'll play it right now. It sounds a little different. It's a little higher pitch than Earth. And we'd, we studied the radiation belts at Jupiter. We found Dawn Chorus at Jupiter, uh, interacting with the radiation belt electrons. We did the same thing at uh, Saturn, at Uranus and Neptune. Wow. So we had a really very, very uh, exciting and successful uh, uh, investigation of all four of those planets. Now, uh, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the history of Voyager, just briefly. It was originally proposed as what was called the Grand Tour, and it was discovered by uh, a person at JPL whose name I'm sorry I forget, that uh, in 1977, the four big gas planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune were lined up in just such a way that with one spacecraft, you could go by all four planets. And better than that, they were lined up in such a way that you could use the gravity of, say, Jupiter to actually accelerate the spacecraft, increase its speed, get it to Saturn, use the gravity of Saturn to further increase its speed, and so forth. We did that at four planets. Hmm. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And that allowed us to get out to Neptune in 12 years. A direct flight at that time with our best rocket would have taken 30 years. So we cut the flight time down from 30 years down to 12 years to get to Neptune. And it turns out this alignment of the four outer planets only occurs once every 179 years. So I lived in just the right era that we could carry out such a mission.
1: That is is so serendipitous.
0: Yeah, it's uh, just the way the ball bounces, I guess. Uh, You know, we were were lucky to have, uh, well, we're lucky that they thought of this gravity assist, which is now widely used, by the way, but uh, Really, Voyager is probably the most famous example of that. They've used it for some other spacecraft missions like the Mariner-Venus-Mercury mission. I think that preceded Voyager. Now, when we got to Neptune, they changed the name of the mission. They changed it to the Voyager Interstellar mission. Hmm. And that's a whole new aspect. Now, I have to check. I, I looked in our original proposal And we did use the word interstellar. Okay. But frankly, I think we were all happy that it first survived, the spacecraft survived getting to Saturn. And we were even happier when Voyager (laughs) 2 got to Neptune. Indeed. Uh, And I don't know if any of us really thought that the spacecraft would last that long. But you know, we had hopes, and it was in our original proposal to try to reach the interstellar medium. Now, let me tell you what the interstellar medium is. Okay, uh, the concept is there's this solar wind coming out from the sun. Uh, maybe you've heard of that, it, it blows the sun is very hot, and there's a gas escaping from the sun called the solar wind. And it's really moving fast. It's moving about a million miles an hour by the time it gets to the Earth. Uh, it takes about two days for the gas to get from the sun to the Earth, just to give you kind of a time scale. That's fast. Now, this this gas is moving at a supersonic speed. And uh, even as far back, well, we, we got the first hint of the Solar wind, I think back in the, well, before 1950, there was some comet effects observed and we thought there was a solar wind. And even in 1955, there was a guy by the name of Davis that that speculated, well, what happens to the solar wind? You know how scientists are? When they discover something, they wanna know what's the ultimate fate of it. So this gas is blowing out from the sun so where does it go or where does it stop now some people thought it just gets you know there's a there's meanwhile a medium between the stars that we sometimes call the interstellar medium Mm -hmm. i mean there's a gas between the stars that we knew virtually nothing about it like how dense it was how many particles per cubic centimeter that kind of thing sure and uh so two things could happen. Either the solar wind could just get be absorbed by the interstellar medium over some large distance that we didn't know, or maybe there would be a sharp boundary. It turns out plasmas like to form sharp boundaries. That's because plasmas carry magnetic fields. And you'll have to go read my book to uh, understand a bit more why that is so it was proposed that there would be a sharp boundary where the solar wind would stop sort of stop and the the solar wind ram pressure which i i use the ram pressure when you put your hand out the window of a car you can feel the pressure yep yep so the solar wind has a ram pressure and when that ram pressure matched the pressure of the interstellar medium, the solar wind would be stopped, or at least slow down. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, because the sun is moving through relative to the nearby star, so it's moving through this interstellar medium. So we think the boundary is not a sphere, but more like a bullet-shaped boundary
1: bit of a teardrop shape
0: but we had no idea how far that away that boundary was there were people estimated it was at five, five au which is where jupiter's at Hmm. Uh, i mean you know people just make a wild guessing i'll have to say now, right, I, right. i'm probably insulting my friends
1: so the sun <laughs> is blowing this bubble of plasma uh that encompasses the solar system and and it it's like a bubble in the inter- moving through the interstellar medium of, of, and this is very, you know, not very dense gas. We're talking effectively vacuum.
0: Almost vacuum, but not quite. There's particles out there. Mm-hmm. Now, so there was just this tremendous uncertainty about where this boundary was. And we came to call it the heliopause. And the region inside we call the heliosphere. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we went by Jupiter, no evidence of the heliopause. We went by Saturn, no evidence of the heliopause. So all we can say is it's way out there someplace. And then after we went by Saturn with Voyager 1, we discovered a completely new thing that had never been seen before. We detected a very intense radio emission at two to three kilohertz. Now, the reason it had never been detected before is it can't get it can't make its way inside the orbit of Saturn because the plasma in the solar wind stops it. So it isn't until you get beyond Saturn that you can detect this. And we first detected it in 1983, but we had no idea where it was coming from. In fact, we didn't really. We measured the local intensity, but we didn't have any idea what the total power was. And then, uh, roughly ten years later, in 1992, we detected an even bigger event. I got investigating that, like what caused this event? Did it come from another planet, or did it come from a neutron star someplace? Uh, I was thinking Nobel Prize at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then I got looking at some of the cosmic ray data, and I discovered that about 400 days before the 1992 event, that there was a thing called a, a Forbush decrease, which is a kind of an interim in cosmic ray physics. And the 4 decrease is an abrupt decrease in the cosmic ray intensity at the Earth, and it is believed to be—it was believed to be caused by a shock wave coming out from the sun. You know, a solar flare, a shock wave. Nowadays, they call it uh, coronal mass ejection. Okay. And this created a huge, more or less spherical shock wave coming out from the sun, and that shock wave. Cause cosmic rays to be reflected, and you'd get a drop in the cosmic ray intensity. That's called a four bush decrease.
1: I see. Okay. Interesting.
0: So we see a four bush decrease, which is evidence of a global shock wave coming out from the sun. And 400 days later, we detect this intense radio emission. Well, 400 days, that's a long time. That's over a year. Uh, now, I knew how fast shock waves move. They move. These shock waves come out from the sun, they move typically a thousand kilometers per second or maybe 800 kilometers per second, about a, mil- a few million miles an hour.
1: Mm, very de- through the very low density plasma of the solar system.
0: Yep. And I did a rough calculation, you know, to get the, and I proposed, incidentally, that this, this radio emission came when the shock wave reached the heliopause. That's a hypothesis.
1: So so it's an echo off of this heliopause ionosphere of the solar system boundary.
0: Yeah, a boundary out there. Uh, Now I can estimate the distance to the heliopause. Very simple, well-known principle. Distance equals velocity times time. The time was 400 days. What's the velocity? If I take a million miles an hour, I get a huge distance. I think I got, when I did the first rough back of the envelope calculation, I got something around 200 AU. Bad news. Voyager won't even operate till 200 AU. Then I decided I would study these. We had four other spacecraft up at that time out in the solar wind. Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, Voyager 1, Voyager 2. Plus we had observations at the Earth. And from those... Uh, we could see the four bush decrease at all those spacecraft, and we could see the shockwave. And so I refined the velocity based on actual measurements, and it turned out to be about six to 800 kilometers per second. And not only that, uh, I knew that when the shock wave gets out, it has to go through a Well, this gets really complicated. It has to go through a shock transition in the solar wind before it gets to the heliopause, so I knew it would slow down a bit. And so I made a rough estimate, and I came out with a number of 116 to 177 AU. Now, none of my colleagues wanted to hear of that number. As I have been quoted in the press, they were polite, but they just didn't believe it. (laughs) The reason is That was in 1992 And if knowing the velocity of Voyager It would have to go Till somewhere Around 210 to 220 Before it gets there And that was another 20 to 30 years And nobody wanted to hear that Especially the people That were going to pay for the project (laughs) And so I didn't get a very good reception. In fact, there's a, there's even a thing you can look up, there's the National Academy of Science has a report out on the web dated 1991, which is kind of a history of this whole thing. And in that report, I tell about how I would go to scientific meetings, and if we hadn't gone through the heliopause, I would say it's been a good year for me because my theory is getting better and better. <laughs> And time goes by, and finally, in 2012, August of 2012, we reached the heliopause at 121 AU, which was within my limits. And I might tell you my limits were rather large, 116 to 177. That's because we just didn't know the shock propagation speed and how much it would slow down. But it was within my limits, and I was right. That's an
1: amazing prediction.
0: And my whole theory has since been, I think, almost
1: 100% validated about how this radio emission was produced. So that was how long after Voyager was launched? Voyager was launched in 1977, and in 2012, it measured the edge of the solar system, effectively the heliopause, where the sun's influence is overwhelmed by the interstellar space.
0: Right. and that would be 34. let's see, did I do this right? 35 years. 34, 34 to 35 years.
1: How does a spacecraft last that long? That's amazing. So this is a piece of electronics that you built back in the mid 70s that's been operating continuously in space in a harsh radiation environment for 35 years.
0: That's correct. And not only my instrument, but the whole spacecraft, including the tape recorder. You know what a tape recorder <laughs> is, right? We have an old I'm not I should call it I'm about to call it an old fashioned tape recorder. Well it's especially built for flight on voyages I and mean, probably quite expensive. But that tape recorder which sends my data back has been working ever since launch.
1: A tape recorder. A real just a reel to reel tape recorder with a with a motor and and it's been working perfectly since, oh my goodness. Working perfect. The, the engineering on this is, yeah, is amazing. And, uh,
0: that's the only way I can, I, I have a very high data rate. My uh, my instrument takes 100, 115,000 bits per second to get back. And we can load that onto the taper current and get my data back. But it's transmitted back at 140 bits per second. So it takes... It takes hours and hours to get our
1: recording back. 140 bits per second is is all you can get because you're using these huge RF dishes to contact something that's so far away that the the data rate that that you can send back without losing the signal entirely is, is 140 bits per second.
0: That's correct. The problem is, of course, as we get farther from the Earth, the signal gets weaker at Earth. And one of the great things the engineers did on Voyager, they designed a, a scheme where you can lower the bit rate all the way down to 140 bits per second. But 140 is the lowest we can go. And even and it, with the extremely weak signal, for me to get, I'm going to call it our data back out of the tape recorder, uh, it takes almost an entire deep space network array of antennas to get our data back. We have to use a 70 meter antenna. That's huge.
1: (laughs) Dish antenna.
0: Plus three 34 meter antennas. And pretty soon we're going to have to, they're building another antenna for me. (laughs) I say for me. (laughs) I I, uh, campaign for this, I might say. And uh, pretty soon we're going to have to use a 70 meter plus... Four thirty-four 34 meter antennas in, in what we call an array to get our signal back.
1: And this, this spacecraft has been working off of a, a nuclear thermoelectric generator battery effectively for 35 years, like one battery it was, it was a, what is it? A chunk of plutonium was put on board and the heat from that is being used by a thermoelectric generator to create electricity basically. And it's just cooling off slowly. Uh, so the, Without nuclear power, this craft would not have worked. I don't think a solar panel would would work.
0: Yeah, you've got basically right, except I don't usually call it a battery. It's a plutonium power supply. And the plutonium has a half-life of 87 years. And rough rate, just a rough calculation, but we lose about four watts per year, and we're down to somewhere around 230 watts. You ought to check with JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory if you want to get a really accurate. That's what I what I remember. And uh, we're getting to the point where probably the the spacecraft can't be run for something maybe another ten years or so and again you should contact the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in their best estimate but that's that's roughly and then we'll, then we'll just get run out of power not enough power to even run the transmitter on the spacecraft so
1: so this spacecraft is something like 120 some astronomical units from Earth, so 120 times the Earth sun distance away, and we're de- well,
0: that's when, we, that's when we went across the heliopause 121 AU back in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, as of today, let me look this up Voyager 1 is at 154
1: astronomical units. Wow, and Voyager 2 is at 128. And so, we're, we're basically detecting a radio. Uh, antenna, which is radiating like a hundred watt light bulb. Yeah, it's it's a twenty two watt transmitter.
0: Actually, it trans it can transmit either on X band or yeah, it doesn't have as much power as a hundred watt light bulb.
1: And we're detecting this from Earth.
0: We can transmit wow. on S band or X band, and there's some pros and cons I could get into on that. But uh, yeah, it's it's still working. There have been some minor failures. Our i have to say our instrument on Voyager 2 had a had a failure in it, which we can't get back this sound information, but half of our instrument is working. We're going to have to start turning heaters off. We've already done that to some extent, um, and uh, we've already turned all the instruments off that uh, are no longer useful. The camera, for example, is not useful anymore because there's we're not going near any planets or anything like that. So it's it's a big struggle to keep the spacecraft going. But the people at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory have a whole team team working on that, studying uh, you know all the ways something might fail. Do they,
1: do they have they taken any pictures from from Voyager's perspective on the solar system?
0: Well, they did actually. I'll tell you about one is one of my favorite pictures. After we flew by Neptune. And, and I, that would have been about, let's see, that was 79, 19, sometime I believe in 1980, I can't remember the exact date. We turned the camera back toward, more or less toward the sun and took a picture of all of the planets. Now, I, I, if I remember right, we couldn't, couldn't see Mercury, and we called that the picture of the century. But, uh, you know, in some respect, you might say it's not a great picture because you can just see these dots out of the planets. But I, I think the whole idea of kind of looking in the rearview mirror of your car, looking back yeah. at the solar
1: system, is really cool. Indeed. Indeed. I do, too. That sounds really cool. So what's 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 in the future for the Voyager mission? I, I mean, it's it's an amazing, iconic mission. It's it's. You know, it's so many firsts.
0: Well, we're trying to. We're trying to. I'm trying very. Our instrument, by the way, we only, we only take uh, 1.4 watts. I'm the lowest powered instrument on the spacecraft, and we're going to be the last ones turned off. However, the tape recorder is going to stop. Uh, we aren't going to have enough le- electrical power to run the tape recorder in, after after 2025. I, I'm somewhere around that. Somewhere around there, so things are looking. Uh, I'm going. To, I was about to say somewhat dim <laughs> when you start looking at the five or ten year future, but we're still going to be getting data, and the magnetometer is still going to get data probably for another ten years or so. Uh, but the real emphasis we have now is planning the Voyager. We call it the, a new mission called the Voyager Interstellar Mission. And as we speak, there are planning sessions going on to try to define an instrument that can go to a 1,000 AU in 50 years. And that will take, I think, an increase in the spacecraft velocity by about a factor of five. I, I, I think somewhere around a factor of five. Okay. And of course, uh, do we have a rocket that can do that? We can no longer use the gravity assist of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune because that's only once every 179 years. So that's that's a real challenge and whether that'll get funded by Congress uh, when it gets proposed, we remain to be seen. And uh, part of the reason there is to uh, get out, uh, even farther into the region where there's all these these icy objects called the Kuiper Belt objects, and maybe take, they've already taken some pictures of those with new the New Horizons spacecraft. Maybe you're familiar with that mission.
1: Yeah, yeah, the one that went by Pluto.
0: So we have plans, but let me tell you that a mission to a nearby star. I like to think about these far out things, and boy, that looks really grim. Because at the velocity that Voyager is moving, this is the highest velocity object uh, made by a human. I, I might no longer be right on that. New Horizons, I think, might be a slightly higher velocity. But it's going to take 30,000 years to get to the ne- nearest star. And right now, we just don't have any uh, any rocket in sight, any concept that can get us to velocity. to get us to the nearest star in a, let's say, a human lifetime. Challenging, uh, challenging thing for our students to start thinking about that.
1: I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, when, when someone comes up with the idea to do it, because that would be amazing as well. So I think we're reaching the end of our, our time slot here. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and telling us about your, your work. It's uh, definitely amazing uh, all the things that have happened to get us to where we are today and, and the knowledge of our, our solar system that's come from this work is 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 immense the the heliosphere the all of this stuff that nobody had even envisioned when you started the mission um, amazing uh, thank you so much for coming on the show
0: you're welcome thank you